Guys, this is the 17th in the Heroes and Villains series. And before we get into this specifically, I, I, I want to mention or I want to frame the message this morning before we get into it. If you're traveling on a curvy highway, I think of uh, Highway 1 or 101 on the West Coast, uh, you're looking down the road, you're aiming for the middle of the road, right? If you take driver's ed, they tell you aim high, you're looking down, you're not looking right in front of the car, you're looking down. So if I'm on a curving road, I'm looking down the middle of my lane and that's where I'm steering. But if I'm on a road like Highway 1, <clears throat> excuse me, and there are precipitous falls or there's rock slide areas or whatever, what, what I'll find is there are guardrails along the side of that road or sometimes there's caution signs. Now, I'm not driving down the road looking specifically for guardrails or caution signs, but I want to be aware of them when they're there because they're there for a reason. So normally I'm looking down the middle of my lane. That's where I'm steering. That's what I want to see. But I'm aware of the signs. I'm aware of the guardrails because they're telling me there's pitfalls to avoid. So I still want to stay in the center of my lane. That hasn't changed at all. But I want to be aware there's dangers for me. So in this series, we've been looking at heroes of the faith and villains. And we say heroes look like Christ, and that's God's goal for us. He's transforming us into the image of Christ. Heroes look like Christ in simple faithfulness. Where has God put us? What's He called us to do? What does that look like? That's Christ-like faithfulness. That's the middle of the road for us. That's where we're steering. What does Christ look like? So remember, it's not religion. It's not rules. I'm looking at Christ, and as I do so, I'm being transformed into His image. But you've also got these stories of villains in the Bible. And if you say, what purpose do they serve? Because frankly, you know, if you teach on the life of Moses a couple weeks ago, it's fun. It's positive, right? He's a hero of the faith at the end of the day. So we're looking at villains today. And you know, it's a little depressing if you spend a lot of time looking at the villains. And I say, what's with that? How, do you, how should we think about this? And for me, the villains, they're the guardrails and they're the caution signs along the road. God tells us there are things to avoid. There are attitudes of the heart to avoid. There are things we've got to be careful about because we're prone to go off the road right or left. And so God gives us these warnings. If you think about it as an artist, <clears throat> Kathy was talking about this the other day. If you're drawing, let's say... Uh, a picture of someone and you want to get their form right, you want to get the, the shape right, you can positively try and draw their shape. Let's say it's just a head or a torso, whatever it is. Positively draw their shape or you can try and recreate the negative space around them. And the villains to me, they're a little bit on the artistic front. They're a little bit like the negative space. They help define the positive. So as we're thinking about the villains today, and there's a few, there's several, um, hopefully what they serve as is they're those warnings, they're the guardrails. And Paul tells us in both Romans and 1 Corinthians 10 that the stories that have occurred in the lives of others before us are there to warn us and or encourage us. So we're going to be looking at villains this morning, and I hope that the thought is I go away aware of some of the pitfalls to avoid that doesn't look like Christ. This is what Christ looks like. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at Moses. And if you remember, he led them out of Egypt. But you remember where we said he started? God says, Moses, you're my man. 
And his initial response was faithless. He just, one reason or another, five times, why, God, I'm not your man. And, and he goes from faithless to a faltering faith, and he ends up being the guy that does look like Christ when he tells God at Mount Sinai, if, if this is what it takes, take me instead of them. That's, that's Christ's attitude, right? Take me instead of them. Didn't start that way, but he finished that way. Well, they get to Sinai, and they're at Sinai for a couple of years. You can see this in Numbers 10, 11, before God tells them to head north to the land of promise. And guys, we're hop, skipping, and jumping this morning again just to get to the key points, right, of these guys' lives. So they get up to the land of promise. Moses sends some spies in. Basically, just what are we getting into? What do we need to be aware of, et cetera? The spies come back, and they give what's called a negative report. And they tell the people uh, the land consumes uh, its occupants. There's walled cities we can't break into. There's giants. We look like grasshoppers. They spread this bad story to the Jewish nation, and the Jewish nation hears it, and they say, yeah, we don't want to go there. And so God tells them, okay, well, you won't go there. So he says, you're going to perish in the wilderness. You're going to spend the rest of your lives in the wilderness. I think the age was if you were 20 and up, you weren't going into the land of promise. So until that generation would be gone, they weren't going in. So for 40 years, they live in the wilderness. And sometime, probably still on the front end of that, our story arises. This is in number 16, and you can park there in your Bibles if you're going to look there this morning. And let me just tell you where we're going. Uh, most of the Bibles, if they give a heading on the chapter or the passage, this will be called Korah's Rebellion. Korah's Rebellion, he's the primary mover and shaker in this story. But what we'll see is that proud complainers love company. Proud complainers mix truth with complaints. Pride and complaining is always ultimately against the Lord himself, not humans, not beings. And pride and complaining always come from this thankless spirit. And guys, what we want to know is all of that is absolutely opposed to the life of Christ in us. When we see these attitudes in us or words like this, we know that's not the life of Christ within me. And this stuff is poisonous. And as we work through this this morning, if you recognize this in yourself or perhaps recognize it in people around you as well, we just want to say it's poison and we don't want anything to do with it. We want to avoid it. Aim for the center of the road, which is Christ. So this is number 16. Uh, Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peles, sons of Reuben. So you've got guys from two different tribes here. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel. There's 250 chiefs of the congregation. Notice this word, chosen from the assembly. This is in the ESV. Well-known men. So in order, you've got Korah, from the Levite tribe. Then you've got guys from Reuben, a few of them. And now those guys chose 250 other men. You've really got a conspiracy being described here. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? We won't develop this now, but all we're looking at now is these guys rise up against Moses and they say, they accuse, and they say, um, 
you guys aren't the only holy ones in the nation. We're holy too. And Aaron and his son shouldn't be the only priests. That should be open to all of us. So that's the initial proud complaint. There's another complaint. And this comes from, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. This comes from Dathan and Abiram. These are the descendants of Reuben. And I'm skipping through down to verses 12 through 14 here to get their complaint. Moses goes to them, he calls them out, and they say, hey, we're not coming, we're going to stay right here. Dathan and Abiram say to Moses, is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? And isn't that interesting? They're calling the place they were slaves, in which their prime food were roots, onions, and leeks. They're calling it now the land of milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. Must you also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You've not given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards, which was the promise. So Korah sort of has this proud complaint. We're, we're as good as you, basically. But Dathan and Abiram, this is more of a complaint about we didn't get the stuff we were promised. We want the good stuff. You told us what we were going to get, and we don't have it. So you've got two different groups. And they're, they're both complaining, but they're coming from a little different place. Korah is primarily about pride and envy because his argument is Aaron and his son shouldn't be the only ones that can serve as priests in the tabernacle. So it has to do with pride and envy. We're holy too. The other main complaint, it includes pride. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it really boils down to this sense of I'm complaining, I'm not thankful, and I want more stuff. I want more comfort, I want more ease. My life should be easier than it is. I should get more good stuff. Sort of a consumerism mentality almost. Now these two groups have recruited the 250 other people. And they're going to rise up so en masse against Moses and Aaron. And what we want to say on the front end here about what we're avoiding. Uh, guys, we've got to be careful about harboring or feeding a proud and complaining spirit within ourselves. And you might sit here this morning and say, yeah, that's no problem, but it is a problem. And it's what our sinful, selfish natures are prone to. Pride, envy, and thankless spirits, this is sort of the stuff of what we're made, and if we're not careful, it's where we go so i say things to myself like and just see if any of this connects with you um maybe i have smartphone envy you have a smarter phone than i have and i'm like well why does he why can he afford that phone and i can't or or i drive a nicer car than you do so am i are you thankless for the car you have um someone's married and you're not someone's able to have children and you're not so it could be income, right? This could go from the mundane to the sublime. Either others that I'm as good as them, they have things or standing or something that I don't, and I should have what they have. I'm as good as them. Pride. Or, yes, I have some stuff, but it's not as good, it's not as new, it's not as shiny as what someone else might have or what I thought I would have. So it, it tends to be more focused on pride and envy it's about me. I'm as good as anyone else. But it can also tend, pride and envy can also express themselves in the spirit of thanklessness. I'm a complainer. I don't have what I want. 
And guys, these both, these are absolutely death to the soul, to the spirit of a Christian. They, they just bring death. It's like, a, it's like acid rain raining down on our souls when we entertain these kinds of thoughts. And this is part of the problem too. This is a conspiracy. What happened with these guys is a conspiracy. So Korah is the head of the triangle. He recruits, it appears, the sons of Reuben. And then they go out and they choose 250 other men. Now they choose. This is care. This is, they're being careful. And why do they do this? This is a conspiracy. They're getting as many influential people as they can to spread their poison and their accusations. So guys, this is what you'll find. Not only do we have a tendency in and of our sinful selves to pride and thanklessness, but when we're not happy, we don't want others to be happy either. And so we're really good about recruiting others to our unhappiness. So one of the things we need to be really careful about, we've got to reject the temptation in our own souls to make much of ourselves, to elevate ourselves, to be thankless for what God's already given. We've got to be very careful for ourselves. And we've got to be very careful both in what we communicate to others or in what others communicate to us. Be very careful about getting pulled into negative thinking, negative words, accusations. This is easier said than done. And this isn't true just in their day. It's potentially true in our day as well. And, and frankly, you know, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time in any churches, you know this is par for the course in the life of the church, isn't it? Somebody's got a complaint. They go to somebody else with the complaint. In fact, I think I've got this in Deuteronomy uh, 29.18. I think the reference is on your sheet. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That it looks, it starts small, it's a root, but it grows and it spreads. And so we want to be careful, not only that we're not killing our own soul through these attitudes, but that we're not joining with others who want to sort of play into this sickness, and that we're not spreading the temptation for that sickness to others as well. So this is huge. I won't go into it, but Romans 1.21 is on your study sheet there. In context, this is talking about the darkness that's true of Gentiles who didn't know Christ when Paul's writing Romans. But guys, the dynamics in this are true for Christians. The dynamics about I've turned away from a thankful attitude towards God and what I get is a darkened soul. That happens to us as well. So we want to be very, very careful about entertaining those negative, proud, envious thoughts. Certainly be careful about not communicating those to others and also not joining in that when others want to. Now guys, perhaps you found this for yourselves, perhaps not. If we are religious or moral or moralistic, a lot of times we will couch our sin in religious or moralistic or ethical language. And that's exactly what Satan does too. What we do is there's an element of truth in what we say, and that becomes the excuse for the sin. So we defend our sin by an element of the truth. And this is what you see in Korah. So for instance, verse 3, Korah says, all of us are holy. All of us are holy, Moses. It's not just you and Aaron and Aaron's sons that are holy. We're holy too. And that's true. So Exodus 19, 6, before God gave Israel the covenant, God says to them, you shall be to me a kingdom 
of priests. So Korah's a priest, and all the Jews are priests. And he says, you shall be a holy nation. Absolutely. How many of the Jews are holy? Well, all of them are holy. That's what God said. You're going to be holy and you're going to be priests. That's true. There's a passage just before our passage this morning, Numbers 15, which the Jews are told to put tassels on their robes and the tassels will be connected with a blue cord and blue was the color of the high priest's tunic, his robe. And blue was one of the primary colors in the veil in the tabernacle. And the color blue with those tassels was meant to remind them that you're holy. See the high priest? He's holy. You've got the same bit of color on you. You're holy too. Absolutely. So Korah says, we're holy. And we say, well, that's true. That much to that degree is true. It's false though at this level. They are not equally set apart in the same way. Are they all holy? They're all holy. But are they all equally functioning before God in the same way? And we say, well, absolutely not. If you look at Exodus 28.1, it's there that God says He's going to pull apart Aaron and Aaron's sons. They're going to be the priests. And so throughout the rest of the Torah, those, the last four, the first five books of the Bible, when God's giving directions to priests, He always addresses Aaron and Aaron's sons, because they're the priesthood. So you remember you've got Levi, one of the 12 sons. Levi has a lot of descendants, and of those descendants, Aaron is one, and Aaron and his sons, they're the only, they're the only portion of the tribe of Levi that will provide the priests. But all the directions God gives are to Aaron and Aaron's sons, uniquely so. Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 5, when it's talking about Jesus and his high priesthood, says that a priest never makes himself a priest. That a priest is always designated a priest by the one he serves. And so these guys are rising up saying we're holy, we should have the same privileges and rank as Aaron and his sons in serving in the tabernacle. And God says, well, not so. Because you serve me and I've appointed Aaron and his sons, not the rest of the sons of Levi. God's the one that determined that. So God determined that Aaron is the first high priest, his sons will follow him in the priesthood, and their role is to do the stuff specific to the offerings and the gifts. So if you went to the tabernacle, you're going to go to one of Aaron's sons and they'll offer the offering. They'll slay the animal, they'll spill the blood, they'll wash, do the, do the purification with the water. They'll take the bread and the incense into the first holy place of the tabernacle, Aaron or his followers as high priests, they'll be the ones who go in once a year to the holy of holies. That's what they do. The Levites had a different designation. The rest of the descendants of Levi, the males among them, they serve the tabernacle itself. So they're the ones who, they put the tent up, they take the tent down. They carry some of it on carts every time they have to move. Some of it they carry by poles. It's not put on a cart. They carry, the priests themselves carry it. But you've got this division of labor. So God said, Aaron and his sons, they're my priests. The rest of the Levitical men, they're the ones who are going to serve the rest of that area. And you see the same thing later under Solomon and Solomon's temple. Now Korah is a Levite. And he is holy like all Israel. And he is a priest like all of Israel. But he's not a descendant of Aaron, so he's not a priest 
in that sense. So he says we're holy and we're priests on one level, true, but not in the way he's making the argument here and now. So both the priests and the Levites are needed because they're doing different areas of service and work. And so it won't do for one to say you're better than me or you're worse than me because they're both serving in the areas God designated for each. So there shouldn't be this sense of I've got to grab more for myself, I need a more important role, or I've got more responsibility than I want, I want to do something that's less demanding. This could go either way because they're all serving in the way and the place that God's given them. And guys, this sounds an awful lot like the life of the church, doesn't it? An awful lot. So if you're a Christian, are we all holy as a Christian? I've trusted Jesus to save me from my sins. His blood covers my sins, and I'm a believer. We're holy, right? We're as holy as Jesus. We're in Him. He's in us. We're holy. Are we all priests? This, these are not trick questions, guys. <laughs> yes, we are all priests. First Peter. Uh, P- Peter quotes from the from the Old Testament, from these passages say, you're a holy nation, you're a royal priesthood, just like they were, we are. However, do we all do the same thing? Do we all have the same function in the body of Christ? Then we say, well, not at all. So, you know, then you go to the, the gifts of the Spirit in the Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4, talking about the fact that there's diversity of the ways God's equipped you or me, or anyone else, to serve. And the whole, the whole issue of 1 Corinthians 12 is they're all needed. And you can't say to another one, you're more important, or I'm less important. It says they're all needed, or you're a blind person, or you're a deaf person, or you're a mute person, or you don't have hands, or you don't have feet, whatever it is. If you're in the body of Christ, we don't all serve the, way, the same way, but we're all holy. And we're all priests. We don't want to envy each other. We don't want to complain about the responsibilities we've been given or haven't. We simply want to fill up the time and the place and the gifts and the callings God's given us. And guys, this is a challenge. You and I will always be tempted in this life for something more, something better, or something less, something that I don't want to do. This is absolutely a challenge. Right in the body of Christ, right in the church of Jesus Christ. So we've got to be very, very careful. Now, the text in the story, Numbers, it said that Kor and these guys rose up against Moses and Aaron. But Moses clarifies what they've really done. And he says this, Numbers 16, uh, verses 8 through 11, Moses says to Korah, hear now you sons of Levi, and here he just delineates what they're standing and how God had gifted and called them. He says, um, God, the God of Israel separated you from the congregation of Israel. So if we see God here and Israel's here, Moses says the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself. Korah and the Levites, they're nearer to God physically in his presence at the tabernacle than the rest of the tribes. To serve us in the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation to serve them, He has brought you near and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with him. God has already honored you. He's honored you above the rest of the tribes. You, singularly, have been called out. It is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. 
What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So Moses points out, your gripe isn't with Aaron and it's not with me. Your gripe is against God. God's the one who determines who you are, where you are, where you serve. He's already uniquely gifted and called you beyond the rest of the tribes of Israel. You're the only ones that get to be this close to the tabernacle. You're the guys that that lift and carry the Ark of the Covenant and the showbread table and the incense altar. No one else gets to do that, just you guys. But they say it's not enough. We want more. We want the one thing that's been forbidden to us. Does that sound familiar, by the way? I just want the one thing God said don't take. You can have everything else. You've got everything else. But I want the one thing God said no to. And that's what they're saying, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. That one thing God forbid, that's the thing I must have. Now, Kor is displaying the same kind of faithlessness that we saw in the second message in this series that was Satan. And really, Moses says to them, you're not raising your charge against me. Your your charge, your fist is raised against heaven. It's against God that your complaint is being made. You remember the, if you remember back to the second week, which was last summer, Satan is this glorious creature. He apparently is in God's cosmos the most glorious creature ever created. And he somehow has something to do with the throne of God. And he stands above all the other creation. But he says, the one thing that's forbidden me, that's what I want. I want to be God. That's what I'm after. And so he says, none of this matters. And and that's the same spirit you see going here. That when you and I are faithless in this way, I should get more. I should be more important. God should, should elevate me. It's the same thing that Satan was doing. It's anti-Christ behavior. It's not Christ's behavior. It's negative space. It's the warning signs. It's not what we're supposed to be aiming for. Henry Ward Beecher said, A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. What you'll find is if you're not content where you're at, you won't be content where you're going. And if you're not content with what God has already given you, you won't be content when He gives you more. So really, it's the here and now. Where are we here and now? That's really the, that is predictive of what we'll get when God gives us more. So this, this is a million things in our lives, guys. And you know what? We as Americans, the time and the place we live, we have privileges, don't we? Materialism that note that people in other time, other parts of the world even today can't imagine, and certainly people throughout history could never have anticipated. Whether it's smartphones and communication or transportation or microwaves or food, we take things for granted that the rest of the world historically has known nothing of, and what do we say? We just want a little more. This, this microwave isn't as nice as that one. You know, this car isn't as good as that one. That's the same spirit. It's exactly the same thing. This affects us, not just others. Uh, when, when we think of the complaints, so Korah, Korah and those guys are saying we want more, primarily pride and envy. We want that status. We're as good as you, or you're no better than us. With the others, though, it really has to do with this spirit that is thankless. 
that's thankless. I'm not thankful for what I've been given. That's the sons of Reuben, Dathan and Abiram. They feel, and guys, this is the spirit of entitlement. And that's rampant through the culture today and through the world today. I deserve this. I'm worthy of this. That should be mine. I should have this. I'm the consumer and all of life's about me. My desires are a black hole. And no matter how much I suck in, I just want to suck in more because all of life's about me and my pleasure and my feeling okay about myself, whatever it might be. And it really has to do with this thought of thanklessness. And notice this. They called Egypt a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you know that we tend to elevate the past? The past wasn't as bad as we thought it was when we want more. They're saying, oh yeah, that was pretty good. I had it good before you ruined my life. So now you, you owe me this. And you remember, Moses had told them, God's going to lead you out of the land of leeks and onions and slavery, and he is going to take you to the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise. But they've conveniently forgotten that the reason God doesn't take them in is because they said, we won't go anyway. So God said, okay, then you can't. You don't want to go in. You don't want me to give you the thing I promised you. Then that's fine. Then you won't get it. But your children will. They'll get the land of milk and honey. This was this totally thankless spirit. Now, they also say something that's true. They say to Moses, we're not there and we should be. That was your promise but they negate the fact that it was because of their own willful stubbornness and faithlessness that they said to God, we don't want it. And so he simply affirmed their choice. Kathy's had a hanging in our house for some time. It's not happy people who are thankful, but thankful people who are happy. And I think that's a pretty good truism. And what we want to develop in Christ's likeness is a thankful attitude no, more, no matter what it is that's going on in life. Now, these guys, these descendants of Reuben, it's true that they were going to live out their days in the wilderness. That's true. And, and that's not God's fault. That's their fault. But even with that, God gave them manna every day. God rained uh, frosted flakes on them every day. They got up in the morning, they went out and they got breakfast, right? And Psalm 78, which is this lovely passage, says men ate the bread of heaven or the food of angels. It was this miraculous thing. Jesus and the Jews reference it in John's gospel. Uh, God fed them every day. In fact, he gave them a meat feast one time too. The quail were reined in so that they ate as much meat as they wanted. And also, they remember, they're in a desert. They're in a wilderness, very dry, you know, in that area around Egypt and up into the land of promise. And yet they had clear, clean, life-giving water. Every day they were in the wilderness once they got past, once the rock was there and Moses struck the rock. In fact, it says that the rock followed them through the wilderness. And Paul tells us in the New Testament the rock was in fact, uh, I don't know quite to say this, but it, the rock represented Christ. Christ was the life-giving water as well as the life-giving bread. They're in the middle of the wilderness and there's always this fresh, clean water. And there's breakfast and there's food every day. And God says to them, and I'll be with you every day. And they could look over the tabernacle any day or any night and see a cloud or a pillar of fire and know God's with us. Deuteronomy says right before they get into the land, he says, your clothes didn't wear out. 
your sandals didn't wear out, your tents didn't wear out. Yeah, if you're a fashion guy, like some of us, that would be a bad thing because you want a reason to go buy some new clothes. They didn't get any new clothes. They didn't need them because they didn't wear out. And God's with them. And they basically say, it's not enough. We're entitled to more. Life should be better than this. Exactly the same thing. This thankless spirit. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 through 8 says this. Some people in, in the church there in Ephesus where Timothy was, they were saying, you know, godliness is a way to get more stuff. And by the way, that's a message in the church today, isn't it? If I'm a Christian, God promises me a status and a standard of health and wealth. That was an, that's not a new argument. That was going way back in the day. And, and Paul responds with this. He says, godliness with contentment is gain. Godliness with contentment. That's a good thing. That's a positive. That's desirable. And he predicates it on this. He says, if we have food and, cover and clothing, we can be content. Anybody here without food or clothing? And basically, it's the necessities of life. I've got something to eat, and I've got a place to avoid the, the elements of the weather. Paul says, if you've got that, you've got enough to be content. Guys, how many of us should be content? All of us. God's provide. This is no different, by the way, than the, those guys in the wilderness. Hebrews 13, I love this. And uh, the writer there says, um, uh, having food and clothing with these, we should be content because he has said, Jesus has said, I will never leave you and I won't forsake you. When Christians say to God, it's not enough, we are in fact saying Christ isn't enough. That's the implication of Hebrews 13. Uh, Christ is with us always, just like them in the wilderness. He's providing all of our necessities, just like in the wilderness. And when we say or complain or entertain that attitude in our heart, I'm entitled to more, I deserve more, I'm better than that, I'm better than this. We're doing exactly what they did in the wilderness, exactly. We need to be careful about developing a thankful and humble spirit. And guys, what you'll find, and let me just challenge you, write this down for yourself on your study sheet if you have one. Just for the next week, try this as an experiment. You can just try this as an experiment. Uh, every time you're tempted to complain or moan or, or be worried or anxious, uh, choose to, to offer some prayer to God of thanks. Lord, thank you that. So I heard one of our friend's car broke down this week. So she could say something like this. God, thank you that I have a car to break down. Right? That could be, that could be thankful. So it doesn't matter what it is, right? I have a car. So whatever it is. So if it's a good thing, Lord, thank you for breakfast or home or family or whatever it is. Thank you. But also, even if it appears to be a negative, Lord, thank you that you have promises that cover the things that just came into my life that I don't know what to do with. Lord, thank you that you're the solution to my challenges and my problems. And if others serve you, thank them. In other words, just for the week, have the attitude, the consciousness in your mind, which you just say, I'm just going to express thanks to God for whatever comes. And in a week, see what your attitude has been like, what your sense of peace and joy have been like through the week, just because we focus on humble thanksgiving instead of proud complaints or demands, it absolutely changes the status of your soul, the status of our experience on the earth. Just having a spirit of humility 
and thanksgiving. Guys, this winds down to this story. Uh, this is meant to be a cautionary tale. So Korah's rebellion, it's a, it's a guardrail on the highway. It's a warning sign at a place where if you go off the road, it's not going to be good. It's going to be ugly. This is number 16. In Numbers 15, right before this story, God gives directions and he says something like this. If you sin unintentionally, I want you to take this kind of an animal and I want you to take it to the priest and he'll offer it for you and you'll be forgiven. And then he says, however, if you, if you have a sin, and he calls it here of the high hand, if you shake your fist at heaven, demanding of God what he owes you, Moses says there's no offering and you'll be cut off from your people. You're done. You're toast. And that's exactly what happens to these guys who rose up in proud, envious, thankless rebellion against God through Moses and Aaron. It's exactly what happened. So number 16, 31 through 35, Moses goes up to Dathan and Abiram and he tells everybody around them, get away from their tents. And the earth opens and it swallows them. And they're killed in that moment. And the 250 guys they recruited they're standing before the tabernacle. They're going to offer incense to God. And fire from heaven consumes them. And they're gone. If you're a believer, let me clarify here. Jesus gives eternal life. And those who have eternal life will never perish. No one can take them out of the hand of the Son. And the Son's hand is in the hand of the Father. And no one can take them out of the hand of the Father. Okay? But we want to be really careful if God is bothered to show us a story like this and its end. That pride and envy and a thankless, self-entitled attitude leads to destruction. We want to take that to heart. That's what happened to them. Now, happily, Korah actually ended up, and the story doesn't tell us how this happened, Korah ended up with descendants who survived this. And Korah's descendants lived better than he did. So one of Korah's descendants is the prophet Samuel in the life of King Saul. That's Korah's descendant. And when you read through the Psalms, you'll see that 11 of the 150 Psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah. That's this guy. And I'm assuming, and these are generations later, but I'm assuming that they learned something from their forebears' rebellion. And that they got it. They saw the caution sign. They saw the guardrails and they said, we're not going there. And so I love the fact that Korah's descendants end up leading worship around the tabernacle and later Solomon and afterwards in the courts of the temple, they're the ones leading songs of praise to God. So I think they took... Their cues. Well, guys, if you would, uh, rise with me now, and I want to read from Psalm 44. The worship guys will come up, guys and gals. Uh, this is from the sons of Korah. And let's just read these three verses together, if you will. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Amen.